0: Yes, the readings on the sheets, Luke chapter 9. If, you want, and if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 18. And we're reading through to verse 36. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them, warned them, not to tell this to anyone, And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus as the men were leaving Jesus Peter said to him master it is good for us to be here let us put up three shelters one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah he did not know what he was saying while he was speaking a cloud appeared and enveloped them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud a voice came from the cloud saying This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. May God bless his holy word. Amen. I'm going to pray again, then we can read. And look
1: into this. Father, open our eyes as the psalmist said that we would truly see wondrous things in your word. Please, would you take your word and hide it deep in our hearts? Please, would you challenge, change us as we meet around your word this morning? We can't do it without your Spirit's help. So please open our eyes because we really do want to see Jesus. Amen. There's a ritual in our home every Sunday night post church. uh, I often crack open a bottle of ale and some peanuts, that's why I have my uh, waistline as it is, and then we went through a period in our married life where we would watch the nine o'clock detective show that was on TV, and depending on the year of our marriage, it was either Poirot or Sherlock or Miss Marple or that crazy detective series, the the bloodiest of them all, Midsummer Murders. I don't know how many people can die in one village in uh, an hour, but regardless of the show that we watched what was interesting was that there was a pattern regardless of the detective in play so the pattern went like this there was as the credits rolled up there was a murder there was something that happened and then uh, a quest began, a journey began, where the detective would interview a few people here and there, and you would journey and they would piece all the, get all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, and then there would be a great climax, a great revealing, like Murder on the Orient Express, when you wondered who did it, and then it gets to the end and it was them, and the finger is pointed at somebody. It's a great journey, all the pieces are put together, this climax, then there's a resolution and it all happens in an hour and a half. It's absolutely amazing how the detective always does it. There is a climax that we're looking at this morning in the Gospel of Luke. There has been a journey, it doesn't matter if you look at Matthew, Mark or Luke, every Gospel writer in the first half of the Gospel in their own way, seeks to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? That's the question, who is Jesus? And it builds up towards a climax and a question. Uh, Normally it's Peter who's asked the question, who am I? Who do the crowd say I am and who do you say I am? And it's there in Luke's Gospel. Uh, It's there if you look back to verse 18 and through to verse 20. This is the The turning point, the crux, the hinge of Luke's gospel, and then there's this amazing revelation of God's character in the person of Jesus. That's the passage I want us to look at, verses 28 through to verse 36. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person who has the power and authority to make huge waves disappear? to drive out sickness and evil from people, to raise up a little girl from the grave. Who is this guy? That's all the gospel writers wrestle with that question. And it's building up like a kind of a pressure cooker to, to an explosion of glory. And that's what we see in verses 28 in this transfiguration. That's the hinge, that's the turning point, that's the focus, that's the climax, just like the end of those detective stories on a Sunday evening with my bottle of beer and my peanuts. Who is this? The transfiguration reveals who this is, who this person of Jesus Christ is, who he claims to be. That's the first point I want to look at. Who is this Jesus from this passage? And then what did he come to do? That's in this passage as well. And then how can we, how can we meet him? First of all, who is this Jesus? Look at the imagery please of verses 29 and following of Luke 9. Luke writes, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing clothing became dazzling white. Or you might have written white like lightning, something like that. We need to do some work here because in this passage you've got white like lightning, you've got thunder, you've got the voice of God coming from, um, from the heavens above, You've got all this strange imagery, and if you know something of the Bible, you should be making a connection right the way back to the second book of the Bible, the book called Exodus. If you're not familiar with it, let me explain it to you. In the book of Exodus, it's where God works miraculously and powerfully and mightily and wondrously to rescue his people, the Israelites, from Egypt, where they were under the heel of Pharaoh. And he redeems, he rescues his people through the Red Sea and he reveals his glory as he leads his people to Mount Sinai where his law is given. But before they got there, God's glory was revealed in a a cloud of glory, a cloud, a smoky white pillar by day and by night it was a pillar of fire. Now this This revelation of God's glory did a couple of things. It kept God's people away from the pursuing army. It guided them amidst the night sky as they went into the wilderness where they would worship the God of glory, the God of Israel. And then having redeemed and rescued God's people, having guided them through the Red Sea, having led them into the wilderness, God's glory that was there visibly there for everybody to see in this cloud, descended atop of Mount Sinai with lightning, with a thunderclap, with something you could see with your eyes and God's glory and his transcendent majesty descended so that no one could touch the mountain. If anyone touched Mount Sinai, then they would surely die. That's what it says in the Bible. What was this glory cloud that that guided and protected and kept God's people as they journeyed towards Mount Sinai? This glory cloud was a sign, a representation of God's transcendent greatness. It was something you could see with your eyes, the brightness, the weightiness, the glory of the King of the whole universe. Protecting his people, guiding his people, and then localising itself on top of Mount Sinai. So what's it doing here in Luke chapter 9? In, uh, in Exodus 33, Moses, who had been up the mountain to receive from God the Ten Commandments and instructions for building a portable tent of meeting called a tabernacle, Moses who saw God's glory came down, he survived. And when Moses saw something of God's glory, his face shone, he had a a reflected glory. It's um, back to science class for a moment. Moses was like the moon. You know, the moon is a source of reflected light. And if Moses, as people saw the face of Moses with this reflected glory, that means Jesus, Jesus is like the sun, Jesus is the source of glory. When you see the glory of God emanating, coming out from Jesus here, it's the glory of God but it's not reflected glory. It's God's majesty, his transcendent, his power, but it's coming from Jesus himself. Moses just had reflected glory but Jesus is revealing the glory of God that's why there's thunder and lightning and a voice from heaven and a face that looks white like lightning it's God's glory emanating from Jesus and what's fascinating is it's not that there's glory coming down here in Luke 9 verse
0: 29
1: there's glory coming out that's the difference. God's glory is coming out from Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God, 100% God, 100% man and 100% God. And it's so fascinating that all through the Old Testament there is a representation of God's glory. So you have, um, you have the burning bush where God's glory is seen in a localized place and, and God's glory is there but the bush is not consumed. Or there's also um, the glory cloud or a smoking fire pot. Remember that? In the early chapters of Genesis, where uh, Abraham rather was taken into a trance by God, into a, a deep sleep, and he sees God's glory as a smoking fire pot. And all those representations are real and meaningful, and yet pointing to a greater reality of Jesus Christ as he comes. And Luke is saying, this is what happened on the mountain. They saw God's glory to the max. God's glory undiluted. God's glory that Moses saw, but he just reflected it. Now they see God's glory in 100% proof. And it's like lightning and thunder. It's unsurpassable. And what is this saying? What's the cash value of what Luke has recorded for us? Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is God's unique son. Jesus Christ is God's perfect unsurpassable final revelation of the character and purposes of God. They're all localised in this man, Christ Jesus. You want to know what the glory of God looks like? You look at him. You want to hear what the word of God is? You listen to him. You want to know God? You know Jesus Christ with the power of his spirit. God's glory is seen on the mountaintops if you go skiing. Like One or two of us are going uh, in in the months to come. God's glory is seen, says Psalm 19, in the beauty of the waves, in the sound of the crashing waves at the seashore, in the beauty of North Yorkshire, even, even of Scotland. Looking at Dave with a similar jumper to me this morning. The memo is, when you leave, you wear blue. But God's glory is fully seen in his Son. Not partially, but fully. And so in Hebrews 1, The writer says, Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. Who is Jesus? He is 100% God. When you see Jesus, you see his glory. you say oh that's all a bit theological that's all a bit high that's all a bit remote let's apply this to ourselves look at verse 33 in verse 33 Peter says this master let us put up three shelters one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah the word tabernacle is the word shelter and what is interesting here is you've got if you are a Jew You've got the Israelite Hall of Fame. You've got the most valuable players in all of Israelite and Jewish history. You've got Moses who received the word of God. You've got Elijah who God took up with a fiery chariot into the heavens who saw God face to face. And now you've got Jesus and Peter is saying, these guys have got to stay here. Let's make tabernacles. Let's make little tents for each one of them. And God says, no, you can't treat Jesus like Moses or Elijah. He's not an equal with them. You can't settle down when Jesus is here. Jesus alone is the final revelation of God's glory. Listen to him. Did you see that? What does God say from the heavens? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Don't settle for thinking that Jesus fits into the mould of the Old Testament. He's come to surpass and fulfil and complete everything that the Old Testament points to. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the exact representation of his being. What does that mean to me and what does that mean to you? This is the King. He is not someone you trifle with. He is someone you bow before. He's not someone you arm wrestle with in prayer. He's someone you listen to. He's someone you obey. He's someone whose authority you recognise and acknowledge. He is the king of glory. He's not a bolt onto your life. When you encounter this Jesus, he's a king you bow before and his authority you heed. That's the first thing we learn from the transfiguration, This is the glorious Son of God. This is King Jesus. But here's the second thing. Luke tells us what he came to do. Look at verse 34. What has Jesus come to do? While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped, surrounded them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Out comes the glory cloud. And it begins to surround them. And it says that they were afraid, verse 34. Now, why? Why were they afraid when God's glory came out? Because all through the Bible, when God's glory is seen, well, no one can see God's glory and live. Even your cattle can't touch the mountain when God's glory descended on Mount Sinai. And here is God's glory seen in all its brilliance, all its perfection, all its holiness and that's why they are afraid because no one can see god's glory and live now what is fascinating in the modern world is that unlike almost any previous generation we think we do not have a problem with god the current modern world especially the western world we think we think that we can approach god on our own terms we can speak to god when we wish God is there to meet our needs. We are not there to serve him. He is there to serve us, if he exists at all. And it's absolutely unique. You go to any other generation, you go to any other culture, any other religion, you could say, and there is a deep awareness that there is a chasm, there is a gap, there is a barrier that needs to be crossed because God is holy and pure and righteous, and we are not. But in the modern world, in the West, that gap has been reduced if not closed completely. God is there and he's there for my needs and he's there when I want him. Who is God to do that? God couldn't allow that, God couldn't enable that and so on. But the Bible says there is something huge, there is something vast, there is a huge chasm that we cannot cross but needs to be crossed. There is an almighty wall that has been erected between the deity and us. There is a barrier that we cannot cross. But it has to be bridged, it has to be mediated. And that's why they are so afraid in this passage. But there is something striking here. When God's glory is revealed, the big surprise of this passage, when God's Shekinah glory, when his purity, when his majesty is seen for what it is, the huge surprise of this passage is that they don't die, but that they live. All through the Bible, when God's glory is seen, people are consumed by his holiness, consumed by his wrath, consumed by his character. And yet here, God's glory is seen to the max, and they live. How? Why? Because Luke is telling us that Jesus Christ is not only the unique Son of God, he's not just God's glory on display when you see him. He's also the bridge to cross the chasm. He's also the the mediator who intercedes for us to his father. Jesus Christ is the only way from us to God and from God to us. Every other religion says this is what you do. This is the price you pay. This is the uh, things that you attend to. These are the laws that you keep. This is the behaviour that you adhere to. But in the Gospel, Jesus Christ comes from heaven to earth as the mediator, as our sacrifice. He comes to bridge the gap that we can't. The disciples, they don't bring a sacrifice. The disciples, they don't bring anything in their hands. Why? Because the Gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. He's the offering that only God will accept. He lives a perfect life. And the disciples didn't, and neither do I, and neither do you. So when you believe in God through Jesus, when you approach God through Jesus, when you take up by faith and hold on to Jesus, when you lean upon him, when you rest in him, when you have saving faith in him, by his Spirit, the glory of God is not something that you're afraid of. It's something that can come into your life. And the kingdom of God can come and live in your heart and transform you. Now, how is that possible? Look at verse 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. What are they speaking about? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment. Now, what is fascinating here is that word that word departure is the word exodus. Not exodus from bondage under the heel of Pharaoh. Jesus has come and it's his exodus they're talking about. Jesus Christ has not just come to to liberate people from social oppression, from social injustice, from slavery to uh, a taskmaster. He's come to liberate everybody who trusts him from sin and death. They're talking about his exodus. They're talking about the cross. He's not just the God on the other side of the gap. Jesus Christ himself is the bridge over the gap. So Luke is showing us who he is. He's the glorious son of God. Why he came, he's come to bridge the gap. But Luke also tells us how we can know him, how we can know him personally. Two things. Verse 28, if you want to know Jesus Christ personally or in an increasing way, We need to pray. Look at verse 28. It's the first clue. Luke says, Eight days after Jesus said this, he took them to the top of the mountain. Now, this is strangely significant. When Luke writes, he writes in a different way to Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark, when they write, they say, Jesus did this, they record an incident, and then he went over here, and then he crossed, and then he did that. Luke hardly ever does that. He writes stand-alone incidents and never joins them, except for a very few times. And here is one of the exceptions. So when he does join them, it's significant. How do we know Jesus personally? Verse 28 says, we pray. Now what has happened before? Look back to verses 18. This is why I wanted to read it. Peter, having seen everything that Jesus Christ has done, is given a theological test. Peter, who do the crowd say I am? Well, Jesus, some say, let me tell you, some say that you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're a prophet. But then Jesus gets close. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. So Peter gets an A in his test. He knows who Jesus is in his head, but he doesn't know him personally. He doesn't know him intimately. He doesn't know him, big word, existentially, I can't even say it. He doesn't know it in his person. You can know truth, but you don't really know it in your heart. And so Luke links these two together and says, verse 28, eight days later, after these sayings took place, he took Peter, John and James, and he went up the mountain to pray. Who is Jesus to Peter? You're not just the Christ. You're the saviour, because becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian is not knowing some data and then just knowing more data. It's not reading a book and then reading loads more books and the more books you read, the better you know Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not just a matter of knowing content. You've got to know Jesus personally. And how do you do that? By seeing his glory That's what this passage is about. You will grow in your knowledge of Jesus, whether it's from nothing to something or something to a bit more. You will mature in your faith to the degree that you see the glory of Jesus every single day of your life. The last two weeks we've been doing our garden. When I say we, I mean me. And there is a slope in our garden and I've been spending more hours than I'd care to admit on the last two Saturdays, removing huge blocks of reinforced concrete with the help of a sledgehammer that I can barely lift. Now, why is that concrete there in that slope? It is there because someone couldn't be bothered to move it. It is there because there used to be a, a railway track at the back of our garden, but it's also there for stability. It's also there to provide immovability is there to provide glory in the slope, believe it or not. What does it mean to see God's glory? What it means is you see the beauty of Jesus every single day and that changes your heart. You see something afresh of the character of Jesus and that changes your mind. It makes you a person, it makes you a person like concrete. It makes you a person who's no longer swayed this way and that when suffering comes into your life. It makes you a person that is not so susceptible to criticism when it comes from your spouse or from a work colleague or from a friend. God's glory gives you a ballast in your heart. It makes you a person of integrity and authenticity and increasing Christ-likeness and of increasing maturity. Seeing God's glory means His words become more weighty to you every single day. You listen to Him, you attend to Him, you meditate upon His words and and work out with the Spirit's help what it means to your life. Seeing God's glory means that what He has done on the cross for you becomes more and more important to you than anything else in the whole world. That's what it means to see God's glory. His love for you becomes more and more glorious because you don't just know it, you sense it. You feel the weight of its importance in your very person. That's what it means to see God's glory. You have the eyes of your hearts opened up, as Paul says, to see God's glory. Friends, that's what I need and that's what you need more than anything else in the world, to see God's glory afresh. It will transform you, it will change you. If you see God's glory afresh, if Jesus becomes more real to you than anything or anybody else, it will transform you. You won't get crushed when people don't approve of you as they should. You won't get disappointed when you're not noticed for doing things because Jesus sees you and you see and sense his glory and that will change and transform you. Secondly, more quickly, This passage also shows us that we are to rest in our family status. Rest in our family status. Notice when the glory cloud comes down and God's glory is seen, what does the voice say from heaven? And and God's voice would probably thunder. This is my son. Now we've heard that before. We've heard that before when God rips the heavens open, when his son is baptised and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, equipping him for his ministry. And God says, Here is my son whom I love. I delight in him. Here's my beloved son. One of the things that happens when God's glory comes into your life is that you hear those words yourself too. The Holy Spirit takes those words and writes them on your heart as well. Martin mentioned it earlier Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the things of seeing and sensing God's glory is that these words that are said to Jesus are said to us too. You are my son, you are my daughter, I delight in you, I approve of you. And that is liberating, that is transformative. We need to hear this afresh. Friends, we are children of God if we know Jesus. You need to hear God saying to you, just like he said to Jesus, in spite of everything you've done, I love you, I know you, you are my son. I wrapped my son up in deep darkness, says King Jesus, or rather his father says of the son, I wrapped my son up in the deep darkness of Good Friday so that you might know my light and my life. I want to assure you, says God to you, of my radical, permanent, unconditional love that comes to you through my Son. And because of that, there can be a a solidity to your faith. There can be a weightiness to your speech. There can be a solid center that makes you more and more glorious and more and more like Jesus every single day. Instead of feeling empty, instead of feeling a need just to prove yourself, to strive for approval, From other people, if you feel insecure or unsure of yourself, here are words that can change your life. Here is God saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, because of Jesus I approve of you, says God to us this morning. Friends, this is what I need and you need more than anything else, to rest in the assurance of God the Father, saying to us because of Jesus I approve of you in him even this morning. You are my child in whom I am well pleased. And one of the fruits that God's glory is seen in our life is actually actually listening to his voice. One of the fruits of seeing God's glory in our life is that we will pray and also that we'll start to rest in our family status What do I mean by that? Verse 35. Here is my son, says God the Father. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Explore what he is saying. Study what he has said. Study the Gospels. And then obey him because he's king. You don't obey to get his approval because in Jesus, praise God, we already have it. If you want to delight King Jesus you will take his words into your heart and by his spirit and with his help you will obey what he says, not to win his approval because you already have it, but to give him the delight that he desires of seeing his sons and his daughters following in his footsteps. Let's pray together. Father we thank you that here we see a unique passage in the Gospels where there is a climax on the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Here is my chosen son, whom I love. I delight in him, and we see and sense his glory. Father, would you reveal your glory more increasingly into my life and heart, I pray. Would you change me? And when I pray for myself, I pray for my friends here that if we don't know you personally, please, would you come into our lives in a fresh way and show us your glory and show us Jesus in his perfection and his beauty and his authority and power, I pray, especially at this Easter time. Amen.